I'm sure you're all familiar with uh, the bumper stickers. So not quite as popular as they used to be, but the bumper, bumper stickers that would say something like, my son or my child is an honor student at, and then name the school, right? They'd say, my, my child's a star student, they're an honor student. And of course, there were the retaliatory bumper stickers that said something like, my kid beat up your honor student. I think those eventually maybe gave way to the other bumper stickers fading. Maybe social media came and took the the thunder away from the bumper sticker. I don't know. But uh, this is the way it has been. Now, if you imagine Mary and Joseph, if they had a car going into Jerusalem, or maybe if they were riding in on a donkey or something like that, you might have one donkey with the bumper sticker affixed. <laughs> My son is an honor student. My son's going into the Sanhedrin. Of course, Mary's would say, my son is God. Yeah, she, she wins. Of course, Mary was more prone to treasure these things up in her heart rather than to brag about it. Uh, but Luke, remember Luke, the writer of this gospel account that we're going to be in today, Luke chapter 2. He wrote this account uh, with more than just Mary's testimony as to the identity of who the Messiah is. Uh, Luke points Theophilus and the rest of us to the testimony of Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad, Gabriel, the angel, Elizabeth, and then Mary, then the shepherds. Last week we heard from Simeon and Anna. And today we're going to hear the testimony of Jesus himself. And not grown-up Jesus, right? Not when he's matured, not when he's grown, but when he is still 12 years old. Old. This is only a gospel account that gives us any of insight to his uh, young years. We're going to hear from Jesus as a 12-year-old. And Jesus knew, at least by the time he was 12, because we have it recorded here, he knew exactly who he was. So Luke chapter 2, verse 41 is where we'll start today. It says in verse 41, Now his parents, Jesus' parents, went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. I remember Luke's effort to remind the reader that Jesus came from a faithful, devout Jewish family. They came to Jerusalem faithfully each year to observe this time of Passover. It says, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom, meaning as they would customarily do, as the Jewish people would customarily do. And remember that Passover was a part of uh, the three annual feasts that were observed by the Jewish people that God had commanded them to do. And Passover commemorates the time when God passed over the homes of the Jewish people during the final plague in Egypt. Remember? They were in Egypt, the plagues had come through, and the final one that was the last straw for Pharaoh was the plague of the death of the firstborn sons. Pharaoh lost his firstborn son in that plague. But the children of Israel had been instructed to slaughter a lamb, to eat the meat of that lamb in a ready posture to leave Egypt. It was going to be the last plague. God knew that. And they actually ate the lamb. They were supposed to eat the whole lamb. And if their family was too small to eat a whole lamb, they could share it with another family close by. But they were to eat it dressed, ready, sitting up, ready to go. That's what God instructed them to do. And the blood of that lamb was to be spread out over the doorpost of their homes. 
And so when the angel who had been sent in for this plague to kill the firstborn, when it saw the blood of the lamb, it passed over those homes, those families, and those boys were spared. If you're interested in reading more about that, that is all found in Exodus chapter 12. Now, verse 43, when the feast was ended, and ended is important here because uh, remember that Joseph and Mary are not very rich. Remember, they had to sacrifice with the turtle doves. They didn't even get a lamb for the sin offering. And so for them to go every year faithfully to Jerusalem and to stay the entire week, that wasn't the norm. Not everybody stayed the entire week. Uh, Most people would come down, and because of the expenses and because of the travel and all that kind of stuff, they'd come for the most important parts and do their thing and then head back out. Mary and Joseph didn't do it that way. They didn't cut the corners or anything like that. They were all... In. And this was an 80-mile trip for them, three, four days trip, and all of the expenses necessary, but they stayed until the feast was ended. As they were returning, though, the boy, Jesus, stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. We see here that Jesus is still listed as a boy. He's 12 years old. Uh, for the Jews, manhood technically, officially would begin at 13. You've heard of a bar mitzvah? That celebration, bar mitzvah, means son of the commandment. And so when the Jewish boy turns 13, he becomes a man. That sounds a little early, doesn't it, for our culture? But at 13, he becomes a man, meaning he is now responsible for himself in regards to whether or not he's following the law. It's his job to ensure that he is keeping the law for himself. And that was his um, definition of manhood. So it was important that he knew what he was responsible for. As a parent, when your child's going to become a young man, you want him to be ready, Right? And so Jesus, at 12 years old, he's going with his family to the Passover. And part of that trip to Jerusalem is his preparation. Because the next year when he comes to Passover, he's coming as a man. Does that make sense? That's what he's there for, especially. Uh, So for them to be bringing him, they're being good parents. This is his final preparation for this next step of faith for him in his life. Um, Please note, too, it looks as though Joseph and Mary have lost their son, but Joseph and Mary were not bad parents, okay? They didn't do that because they were had their faces buried in their phones or anything like that. Uh, when they went together to Jerusalem for this Passover, they all had to go. And by they all, I mean all of the Jewish people. So if they're coming down from Nazareth, it wouldn't have just been Mary and Joseph that were gone for the week and the neighbors watched the home for them. They all went. And so, given the fact that many of the people in Nazareth were probably friends and family... They went together for fellowship, but also safety. You're traveling three to four days journey. You're going to be staying the night, camping at certain places, and they went as a group for protection for those purposes. And so, as you could imagine, even today after church, there's going to be times when our little ones are playing together, and one of the parents is going to be nearby and keep an eye on everybody. Right, parents? But not everybody is going to know where their child is at all time, though I encourage you to do so. 
(laughs) And on that trip back, could it be possibly that for that day of wandering, and not wandering, but heading back to Nazareth, Jesus might have been walking with brothers and sisters and cousins and neighbor friends and such and others as they're going back up. And when it was time to set up camp for the night, Mary and Joseph collect their kiddos, and somebody isn't where they thought they were. And it's Jesus. Think about that for a second. (laughs) There's been a time in our family when one of our kids was not where we thought they were, and we freaked out. Some of you maybe have experienced that before. Um, Some in horrible ways, right? Think about Mary and Joseph. Knowing that they're fellowshipping together, but also they have safety in numbers, and Jesus isn't there. And it's not just their son, Jesus. It's Jesus, the Son of God. (laughs) Think about the weight of the responsibility Mary may have felt at different times, being this young teenage girl with this baby infant Jesus, the care that she would take to take care of him. Uh, Twelve years now down the road, maybe getting a little bit used to this feeling of having the Son of God in your home, but then he's gone and he's missing. And he's not even a man yet, right? He's gone, he's missing. How would you feel? How much fear would be coming over you? I'm sure she was totally trusting in the Lord, wasn't she? Maybe, maybe not. Verse 45, when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple. And when we lost our little one, it was about three minutes. And that was three minutes too long. Three days. One journeys, one day's journey away from Jerusalem, and then the uh-oh moment. And then one day's journey back. And then the next day after that, they find Jesus. So two full nights. Three days, two nights, not having any idea where this boy was. They found him, though, it says in verse 46, obviously. They found him, and they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, They were astonished. And I don't think it was necessarily a, what are you doing in the temple? Though that may have had something to do with it. I think it might have just been a, there he is! (laughs) Right? Or maybe it's a, why aren't you excited? Because what was Jesus doing in the temple? He was asking questions and hanging out with the teachers in the temple. And Mary and Joseph show up and Jesus may have just been and carrying on the conversation where they maybe would have expected him to see them and and run and jump into mommy's arms and all that kind of stuff, right? It didn't seem like that was what he was doing. They're astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Now she should have known better, right? He doesn't sin. (laughs) She's a little fired up. You can imagine that, right? Why have you treated us so? What were you thinking? What were you doing? Behold, And this is significant. Your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's 
house? What do we have here? Mary is saying, your father and I have been looking for you. He said, my father, this is where I am. I'm in my father's house. Now, the parents' perspective in this passage, Jesus, they feel as though Jesus has done them wrong. They were understandably fired up. It would make sense for Mary to be a little emotional in this moment, yes? And now Jesus' perspective, I'm right where I'm supposed to be. This is where I belong. This is where I should be. Now, there's a lot of things happening here. A question, did Jesus sin? He wasn't where he was supposed to be, but he was. Did Jesus sin? First of all, we can say no because he's Jesus. He's God the Son. He is without sin. He's not going to sin. We might ask, perhaps there's a lack of communication. Did Mary and Joseph just start heading out and Jesus just wasn't there when they did? And it took them that day to notice that? We do see later in this passage that when Mary and Joseph say, Come, Jesus comes. He's going to be submissive to them. So he wasn't unsubmissive in staying in the temple. And we also see in this passage that this transition is happening. We know that Jesus is 12 years old. He's at the temple. He's preparing for his manhood. This is his final year of preparation at Jerusalem, at the Passover, gearing up towards his manhood. And with that thought, remember that Jesus the boy is going to become Jesus the son. And that delineation was significant. And we would say to any one of our boys that are born that he is our son. They're just interchangeable. If you say my boy, you're saying it's my son. But for the Jews, he was just the boy. But when he became a man, he was your son. And other cultures like that, in the Greek culture, the word of adoption wouldn't just mean that on one day we went to the court and this child became our child and became my boy, but it was the time of the inheritance being officially uh, marked for that specific uh, heir, son or daughter. That was the moment of adoption. It was when it was made official that it was happening. And so Jesus is going to soon become not just a boy, but a son. Okay, that sonship equals inheritance. It, it, it requires responsibility and so forth. So, whose son is Jesus? Is carpentry and Joseph's inheritance what Jesus has coming? And we said, well, yeah, but only temporarily. Only temporarily. Jesus is God's son. That's whose son Jesus is. And when he turns 13, if he were to have a bar mitzvah party, the dad would not necessarily be Joseph, right? Because that's not who Jesus' father is. And Jesus, God's son, means that the father has the responsibility to prepare the son for his becoming a man. And so Jesus says, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. I'm in my father's house. This is my time of preparation for what I am to become, for who I am. Now, in saying my father's house, this 12-year-old Jesus is also declaring exactly who he is. 
Remember that the father and sonship it makes the son equal with the father. When that son grows up and becomes officially the son and is given the inheritance and given the responsibility, the son becomes, if you will, uh, somewhat figuratively, but definitely in their function, one with the father. And they're both adults, and they both share in this inheritance and share in these responsibilities in their house. And not just in your physical structure of your home, but remember in the Old Testament when you think through who was Abraham's household, it was all those that were under the umbrella of his authority, remember? And so, as Jesus is 12 years old, he calls himself, he calls God, my father. And if the son shares in the responsibility and shares in the inheritance of God being his father... Jesus has just declared that he is equal with God. Twelve-year-old Jesus in the temple to mom and dad, earthly mom and dad, I am divinity. I am God. So here in Luke, Jesus himself at 12 years old knows exactly who he is and gives testimony to his deity. Now remember, last week when we looked at Simeon's prophecy, Mary was told, he will pierce your heart. This whole thing is going to be piercing through your heart. And we certainly would would think that that would be the case as Mary looks on as Jesus dies on the cross. But even think about this time. You lovingly raise up this boy. He's about to become a man. All the things that have been built into him, all this preparation the anticipation of the next year. And Jesus reminds you, Mom, this is not my thing. Remember, Jesus later would say, who are my mother and my brothers? And those those things, those statements, the purpose and the, the, the necessity of who Jesus is, those things would, do you understand, Moms? That would be piercing to your heart. Now, the method of teaching in Jewish tradition, as we think through his time sitting with these teachers in the temple, it was more a dialogue. There was not a classroom with a whiteboard and students all in chairs and desks taking notes for a lecture. It would have been more of them all sitting around together, having dialogue, asking questions, giving answer, referring to scriptures, and the leaders would just be kind of um, steering this discussion, this conversation that's happening. And today, in this time... Uh, This instance, Jesus is the student. He's the student here, but never again. Never again in the gospel is he referred to as being a learner under the instruction or tutelage of others. From now on, he's the teacher. Jesus is the teacher. And these, these teachers here this day, they were amazed. They were amazed with him. Notice that Jesus in this passage listened. Okay, we can learn a lot from that. Jesus, full of wisdom... God the Son was listening, was listening. He asked questions. He understood all that was being discussed. And he gave answers. So in a way, with their methodology of teaching, who was sort of becoming the teacher that day? Jesus was. They were astonished. They were amazed at him. 
Sounds like they were learning a thing or two. And Jesus' full participation this time gives evidence that they weren't just impressed with him as a 12-year-old. It wasn't like a boy for a 12-year-old. That kid is pretty, he's pretty sharp. They were just flat out astonished. Period. And how? Why? Think about this. He's sinless. One of the greatest limiters to your, yours and mine and our intelligence, our sin. Our sin holds us back, yes? Jesus didn't have that. There was no sin holding him back. Jesus had the mind of God because he is God the Son. In verse 40, it said that he was filled with wisdom. And filled, that word means complete, perfected. He had it all. Twelve years old, he'd had it. Uh, Worth being amazed by, yes? And they certainly were. Jesus knows here exactly who he is. He shares with everybody who he is. And he knows he is God the Son. Verse 50. They, when he says this to Mary and Joseph, that he should be in his father's house, they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. The light bulb hasn't turned on yet. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. So here it is. It was time for Mary and Joseph to say, okay, Jesus, it's time to go. And what did Jesus do then? He went. He obeyed. Okay, children obey your parents. Jesus did too, right? He obeyed. And his mother, as we know Mary to do now, his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Even though they didn't seem to understand everything right away, she kept these things in her heart. She treasured them up. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature, which could mean also years. He was growing older and in favor with God and man. Now I ask the question, how would you grow in favor with God if you are God? And I think that this passage, given the other information that we have from this chapter about who Jesus is and and how he's growing, it would make a lot of sense that this would be from the perspective of man. From the perspective of man. Because we know that Jesus could not grow more in favor with God than he already was. I would imagine he had full favor by now, and at all times for eternity. Okay, but we often see others growing and we gather and deduce that they're getting closer to the Lord. Sometimes, though, that's our perception. Somebody could grow much closer to the Lord, and then three weeks later, <laughs> we see something, and we then calculate that. We go through that evidence, and we go, oh, they must be growing. Does that make sense? And so Jesus, going home, 12 years old, becoming 13, becoming a man, growing through his teenage years into his young adulthood and all of that, the people perceive him. They see what he's doing. They see how he conducts himself, how he cares for others, how he interacts in dialogue and discussion with them. And they say, he is growing. He is, and the favor of man is, is swelling up around him. And they, he must be so close to the Lord. Yeah, very. <laughs> but their perception, their understanding of who he is continues to increase. Now, In the conclusion of this chapter with this passage, I want to look at um, some biographical significance, what matters as to what we're learning about Jesus in this uh, passage, in this context, in the Gospel of Luke, and then also some doctrinal significance. And I know 
that that word might sound like a snore fest, but I promise you it won't be. So first, the biographical significance, okay? Uh, This takes us back to last week's sermon. Remember, Luke was writing an orderly account to give certainty to Theophilus and the Gentile readers, and us, uh, the readers of this gospel, of the things that they were being taught concerning Jesus. That was the purpose of this gospel. And if you were reading a normal biography, which this isn't that, but if you were reading a normal biography, what would the author and the reader be looking for in the story of the person's childhood? All great biographies have information about their childhood, right? And what would we look for? What, what shaped them? Who shaped them? What experiences did they have? What were their parents like? Who raised them up? How did they treat them? What kind of an education did they receive? And, and more and more and more information like that. And since Jesus came into the scene as an adult shaking everything up, right? When we think about all the things that Jesus did that just shook up the world, those are all after he's about 30. So since we get that then, we might expect to find in this little biographical sketch, oh man, he must have had parents who had some radical ideas. They must have been feeding him all kinds of stuff that when he grew up, he just like turned on fire and, and shook everybody up. Or, or maybe we might think that he was mistreated. Maybe when he was 12, when he went to the temple to go get ready for his bar mitzvah, maybe, maybe back then they really messed him up. Maybe they did something to hurt him badly that made him grow up and, and hate the, you know, hate those Pharisees, though he didn't hate them. Maybe something like that happened. Maybe, maybe he was educated in an ultra-liberal or some ultra-conservative context. Maybe that shaped his thinking over the years to make him who he became to be. But as we read through the Gospels, we find none of these things to be true. None of them. Jesus was raised up in the faith, if you will. He was taken to Passover at 12, like he ought to have been. He sat under teaching in the temple and had this extra attention given to him by these temple teachers. If anybody had it good in the Jewish faith, in spite of the poverty potentially that he would have grown up in, it was Jesus. It was Jesus. I mean, if we were writing a biography, he should have grown up and been one of those people who said, man, I don't know how you came to be this great leader amongst our religious people because you didn't grow up with wealth and your family wasn't incredibly prominent, but look, you're one of the greatest Pharisees. You're a Pharisee of Pharisees now. What a great story. But that's not what happened. And all of that being said, he knew exactly who he was before he grew up. And in spite of the fact that nobody else seemed to realize it, nobody was pumping into Jesus' head, you're going to be this person. You're going to be the Messiah. You're going you're to tell the Pharisees what's up. Joseph and Mary are hearing these things happening and hearing what he's saying, and, and they don't understand. They don't get it. The temple teachers are amazed. They're dumbfounded. Jesus is the only one who knows who he is. So we know that Jesus was not molded into a Messiah by any human condition or any human cunning or external forces. Jesus, God the Son, eternally existed. He's God the Son. He is the Son of God. This boy was not molded into a Messiah. 
Instead, the Messiah was molded into a young boy. He took on flesh and dwelt amongst us. He took on flesh at this point in history to do the will of his father, and he knew it, even at age 12. So no, this is not your normal biography. This is the gospel. And this is God's son, fully God and fully man, and he knows it. Now, let's talk doctrine, okay? Imagine Jesus. Imagine now, maybe even look through the eyes if you could even imagine it. Twelve years old, full of wisdom, having the mind of God, going into Jerusalem, stepping into the streets, seeing all that's being done, all the busyness, all the hurried folks, all of the worship, the sacrifice, the teaching, the bloodshed of the Lamb, everything happening, being taught its significance, though at this point he knows what's happening, and knowing in all of that that he is the Lamb. Knowing that, and being submitted to his Father's will in it. Not Joseph. He's becoming a man, and his inheritance as a son, as a grown man, will not be in Joseph's house, but in the house of the Lord. Jesus expresses and evidences his submission to the Father's will here in Luke 2. I'm in my Father's house. I'm doing my Father's business. And he also does it, remember, at 33, and all in between. But at 33, at the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane, Luke 22, Jesus asks his Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In all points of life, Jesus is submitted to his Father. So all of these Jews taking part in this festival that's pointing to him. Think of the blood sacrifices that day and that week. The spotless lamb's blood being shed for the forgiveness of sins. That's what he had come to do. The Passover lambs. Uh, When the angels saw the blood, the judgment of God did not come down on that household. When we put our faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, God passes over us, having already poured out his wrath for our sin. Jesus is our sin offering. Jesus is our Passover lamb. And at 12 years old, he knows this. And in his fullness of wisdom... Going into Jerusalem as a 12-year-old, he doesn't make a scene. (laughs) He doesn't do a bunch of miracles and draw attention to himself. He doesn't brag. Boy, what an opportunity with those teachers in the temple. What kind of answers could he have given that certainly would have stirred much more up than just there going, wow, he's really, he's got a sharp mind. They didn't say, blasphemer! They were just saying, wow. At this point, he doesn't make those teachers feel stupid. He doesn't overpower them. And think about this. How many 12-year-olds do you know, go back to when you were 12, that would have been able to walk into a city totally transformed and overcrowded with followers for a full week in your honor, though they don't know it, (laughs) and handle it with such respect and dignity, with such class? Think of him going down the street saying, oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Yeah, that's me. I'm that. You're welcome. And this isn't just a one-time event. 
Last night with the big football games, the semifinal games, there's this one quarterback for Clemson, and the announcer goes, boy, you're so young, and you don't look like you're overwhelmed by any of this at all. That's just one game that's a semifinal that they're going to play again next year, and the year after that, and the year after that. Jesus walks into Jerusalem, and all of history has pointed to this time. And he's respectful and dignified and lets people teach him. (laughs) And he handles it that way. Why? Well, because he's God. (laughs) And he lived a perfect and sinless life. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest. Remember, Jesus is our access to God. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Remember, Jesus was not molded into a Messiah by human conditions or external forces. He has eternally existed, God the Son, the Son of God. He took on flesh at this point in history to do the will of the Father. Philippians 2, 5-11, through 11, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He let go, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of all that, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, Why didn't 12-year-old Jesus go around saying, you're welcome, you're welcome? Because God's going to bestow on him. The Father is going to bestow on him a name that is above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And remember, Simeon said that the name of Jesus would bring the rising and the falling of many. Not every knee that bows and every tongue that confesses that Jesus is Lord will do it in a celebratory fashion. But everyone will. We have to remember that. So why didn't Jesus come down as a grown-up? Why didn't he come just down at 33 years old, do something for a week or two, and then go to the cross and die for our sins? Why was he born as an infant? Why did he have to grow up as a boy, as a young man? Why did he have to live an entire life? Because, as it said in Hebrews, he was to be tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. We know that Jesus died for us. He's the just dying for the unjust. But how did he become the just? How did he become our spotless lamb and suitable for sacrifice? Well, he had to live. He had to live a perfect life sinless life. He was tempted just like we are as a toddler, as a young child, as an adolescent, as a teenager, as a man. In all of those ways, tempted as we are. And he was without flaw, without sin, a suitable sacrifice. Young people, Jesus knows what it's like to be a 12-year-old and a 7-year-old 
and a 16-year-old. Though he wasn't working on his driver's license, right? But he knows what it's like to be that age. And he knows what it's like to be an adult. And to have those responsibilities. This isn't just for grown-ups, kids. You hear me? Jesus knows where you are. And what you're going through. And he did it flawlessly. Think about this now. Without the birth, without the infancy, without the childhood, the adulthood, Jesus could not stand in our place. And this is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Okay, here's the big doctrine word. All of that leading up to this. Jesus died in our place. The righteous one being punished as a sinner. When Jesus died on the cross, God treated him as if he was you. As if he was me. Listen to Romans 3, 23 through 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. God's wrath satisfied entirely by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's what propitiation means. It's satisfied. And it's to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So, because God put forward his son Jesus Christ in my place and in your place and poured out his wrath for our sin on him our sin has been fully punished fully entirely punished there is no more wrath left for our sin his wrath is satisfied and this is not symbolic Jesus didn't die symbolically so that you wouldn't have to pay the penalty for your sin Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. It's done. And if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, submitting to Him as your Lord, there is no wrath, no condemnation left for you. There's none left. Praise God. But that's not all. We know that Jesus' sinless, righteous life made Him a suitable sacrifice, a substitute our atonement, but there's more. Not only has Christ's righteousness made him an acceptable sacrifice, but God has graciously graciously chosen to give us the record of Christ's righteousness. Listen to Romans 5. This is verse 16 and 17. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Being declared not guilty. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. This free gift is received by faith. Did you hear that? And listen to what happened to Abraham from Romans 4.3. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He didn't just not pay the price. Righteousness was counted to him. 
So when you repent and put your faith in Christ, not only is your record of sin wiped away, but Christ's record of righteousness is put to your account. Jesus' perfect toddler record given to you. Jesus' perfect child record, it's yours. Jesus' perfect adolescence record, praise God, 12 was a hard year for all of us, wasn't it? Jesus' perfect teenager righteousness, it's yours. It's on your account. And his perfect obedience as an adult, graciously allocated to your record. You have it. So we could say Jesus didn't just die in your place as if that wasn't enough. He also lived in your place. And his righteousness has been given to you. So when Jesus was on the cross, God treated him as if he was you and me. And when God welcomes us into his family, we're treated as if we were his son, his daughter. We're adopted. That's adoption. Doctrine's awesome, isn't it? (laughs) And this is the ramification of it in this time. When Satan accuses us before the Father, as it says he does in Romans 8, Christ intercedes. He's at the right hand of the Father interceding. So Satan, does he have to lie, by the way? When he says, you'll never guess what Andy did. Of course, God will know what what I did, right? You'll never guess. He did this today. And he's probably totally right. And Jesus, at the right hand of the Father, intercedes for us and says, no, he's mine. And God the Father... Because of Christ's imputed righteousness, his righteousness put onto my account, God the Father says, I see the blood of the Lamb. I see the blood of my Son. I see perfect righteousness. And there is therefore no condemnation to those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Doctrine matters, church, by the way. Doctrine's awesome. And the more clearly, the more accurately we see God and all that he is, the more accurately we see who Jesus is, the bigger he gets. Yes? The more amazing we perceive him to be, growing in favor with man. And the bigger we see him, the more amazed we are by all that he is. That motivates us for godly living. And that's pure motivation. Me just trying to pull myself up by my bootstraps to make God happy with me? No. That is filthy rags. Me seeing God and the glory of the gospel and my freedom in Christ and his righteousness put to my account and that being a done deal for all eternity, I love him for what he has done. And how could I not walk with him? Serve for him and seek to bring him glory and honor and praise, like Paul said, to be pleasing to him in everything. That is the motivation. That is the motivation. So, the final question that we must ask today is who is we? Uh, When I say we are declared not guilty, we are given innocence, who is we? And know this, remember, it's not everybody. It isn't all. 
Uh, Did you hear these words and phrases as we went through these different scriptures this morning? Words like, those who receive, believed, the one who has faith. Simeon told Joseph and Mary, remember, this child would bring about the rising and falling of many, that our hearts would be revealed because of him. So what you do with Jesus matters. Is he your Lord and Savior or not? And there is no third option. There's no third option. So many think that they can ignore the issue and just make it go away and pretend it doesn't exist. If I don't think about it, it doesn't exist. But ignoring Jesus is rejecting Jesus. He is not something you can ignore. Atonement, justification, righteousness are given. They are gifted to those who put their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. They are given to those who believe in him. They are gifted to those who receive the gift. Jesus lived a sinless, righteous life, not so that you wouldn't have to, but because you couldn't, and because you haven't. But now what can you do? What can you do now? Receive the gift. Be saved. Sinners, be saved today. And sinners that are already saved by grace, Christians, let's be amazed by the goodness of God poured out on us and for us. And then therefore, let's strive to become more like the way God already sees us because we have the righteousness of Christ put to our account. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that Jesus lived, that he was born as a baby, that he grew up and learned how to walk and how to talk and how to eat his own food, that he learned how to do math and how to read and always obeyed his mom and dad. And that being God-man, being fully God and fully man, even in his perfect wisdom, even in knowing all that he did, even as a 12-year-old, lived a perfect and sinless life. God, we thank you that he followed your will, that he was submitted to your will, that he died for us in our place on the cross, and that every bit of the wrath that we could ever deserve from you has already been poured out on him. And God, we thank you that when you look at us and look at our record and look at our account, you see the righteousness of your Son. That is a gift we could never repay. So we thank you. God, I pray that if there would be one here today or two or ten that do not know you as their Savior, that have not really believed in the gospel, that today would be the day of their repentance and faith. And for those of us who know you, Lord, that you would become more dear to us that you would become bigger in our mind, in our perception, that our uh, desire for you, our delight in you, our glorying in you would only increase and expand for your glory and for our good. We pray this in the great name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.